this time we'll read from John chapter 16, only a part of chapter 16, beginning, we'll begin the reading in John chapter 16 at verse 16 and read to the end of the chapter. We read from John chapter 16 in connection with Lord's Day 46 of the Heidelberg Catechism, which treats the beginning of the Lord's Prayer in the phrase, Our Father, which art in heaven. In connection with that, we begin the scripture reading at John, at verse 16 of John chapter 16. And there we read this word of God. A little while, and ye shall not see me, and, a little while, and again a little while, and ye shall see me, because I go to the Father. Then said some of his disciples among themselves, What is this that he saith unto us? A little while, and ye shall not see me, and again a little while, and ye shall see me, and because I go to the Father. They said, therefore, what is this that he saith? A little while. We cannot tell what he saith. Now Jesus knew that they were desirous to ask him, and said unto them, Do ye inquire among yourselves of that I said a little while, and ye shall not see me? And again a little while, and ye shall see me? Verily, verily, I say unto you, that ye shall weep and lament, but the world shall rejoice. And ye shall be sorrowful, but your sorrow shall be turned into joy. A woman, when she is in travail, hath sorrow, because her hour is come. But as soon as she is delivered of the child, she remembereth no more the anguish for joy that a man is born into the world. And ye now therefore have sorrow. But I will see you again, and your heart shall rejoice, and your joy no man taketh from you. And in that day ye shall ask me nothing. Verily, verily, I say unto you, Whatsoever ye shall ask the Father in my name, he will give it you. Hitherto have ye asked nothing in my name. Ask, and ye shall receive, that your joy may be full. These things have I spoken unto you in Proverbs, but the time cometh when I shall no more speak unto you in Proverbs, but I shall show you plainly of the Father. At that day ye shall ask in my name. And I say not unto you that I will pray the Father for you, for the Father himself loveth you, because ye have loved me, and have believed that I came out from God. I came forth from the Father, and am come into the world. Again I leave the world and go to the Father. His disciples said unto him, Lo, now speakest thou plainly, and speakest no proverb. Now we are sure that thou knowest all things, and needest not that any man should ask thee. By this we believe that thou camest forth from God. Jesus answered them, Do ye now believe? Behold, the hour cometh, yea, is now come, that ye shall be scattered every man to his own, and shall leave me alone. And yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. These things have I spoken unto you, that in me ye might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. May the Lord bless us in the reading of Scripture from John 16. Connection with 
John chapter 16, and on the basis of all of Scripture, stands the instruction of Lord's Day 46 of the Heidelberg Catechism. This time we'll read what's found there in Lord's Day 46 of the Heidelberg Catechism, the questions and answers 120 and 121. Question 120 is, why hath Christ commanded us to address God thus, our Father? The answer is that immediately, in the very beginning of our prayer, he might excite in us a childlike reverence for and confidence in God, which are the foundation of our prayer, namely, that God is become our Father in Christ and will much less deny us what we ask of him in true faith than our parents will refuse us earthly things. Then there is this question, why is it here added, which art in heaven? The answer is, lest we should form any earthly conceptions of God's heavenly majesty and that we may expect from him, from his almighty power, all things necessary for soul and body. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, to whom do we pray? To whom do you pray? The statistics that people keep in the world show that the majority of the world's population answers that question, would answer that question by saying they pray to an idol god or some other false god or some other object of their own imagination. Some of the population of the world worships a one-personed god. Think of the Muslims, or the cults. Their God is one person. Some worship gods of metal and wood. Think of the Buddhists who worship Buddha. Or they worship spirit gods. In the case of Hinduism, there are millions of gods or spirit gods that the followers of Hinduism must contend with or worship. The followers of those who worship idol gods or gods of the spirit world, as they say, they pray to their gods, they follow all the rituals that those religions require, they make their sacrifices, all with a view and with a goal to earn for themselves a good life and a good hope for the future and for the future of their families and their children. But the scriptures teach that Jesus Christ has redeemed us from that world of idolatry and image worship and taught us in his redemption and the work that he has done for us and which he does in us. We must pray to the one true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the God who created all things, And continues to rule all things for his purpose in Christ Jesus. And it is to that God that the church of all ages has by Christ in his spirit called upon. We read of that in Genesis already that then in the days of Adam men began to call upon the name of the Lord. Upon the name of Jehovah. And continues to pray even today, unto that same Jehovah for his blessing, and for good hope in Jesus Christ, deliverance from sin and death unto everlasting life with him. The Lord's instruction also in this Lord's Day isn't just to teach us we must pray to that one true God, and answer the question, to whom do we pray? 
But just as importantly is the instruction of the Lord's Day to answer this question, how do you pray to that one true God? When we look at the major religions in the world and examine their worship life and their prayer life, we understand that the one to whom they think they're worshiping does affect their worship and their prayer life. There's a close relationship between the object of prayer and the manner of prayer. So when we look out into the world of paganism and heathen and heathendom, we see that their prayers or their worship is filled with often unsettling terror. They do all of their works, all of their sometimes weird rituals, and at the end of all of that, they need to do it again for another year because they don't know. They never have that moment of rest where they can say, I have finished appeasing this God or earning what I need or establishing a good hope for myself and my family in the future. They never arrive at finishing the work that they're supposed to do. They're always worried. Maybe there's something we haven't done yet and they do it, try to do more. And in effort to please their gods, we often see, for example, in the religion of Hinduism, great acts of self-deprivation or self-affliction or self-harm with various knives being put through their bodies in various locations in order to impress those gods that they worship so that they might give them good fortune, they say, and good hope and a good business and much wealth. Or in some religions, they're filled with, in their prayers, vain repetition, monotonous repetition of the same phrases over and over and over again, thinking that for all their many prayers, surely the gods whom they serve will give them their bread and their wealth and their health for another day. Look a little closer and you discover that those gods whom they worship have no fellowship really with their followers. They're always at a distance. And their followers really have no assurance of whether that God whom they serve actually loves them. We may rejoice, beloved, that Christ and God in his mercy has reached down and taken us out of that darkness of idolatry to which we are prone by nature and brought us into the light to teach us to pray to God, the only God, the one true God, and call him our Father, which art in heaven. That is unique. That is the uniqueness of Christianity, the true biblical, reformed religion of our Lord Jesus Christ and Holy Scripture to call upon the name of Jehovah and call him for the sake of Jesus Christ as his dear, dependent, content, little infants to call him Father, which art in heaven. Call your attention then to Lord's Day 46 under that idea, calling upon God, our Heavenly Father. Well, notice, first of all, that that is a bold claim for us. But there are, there is a reason, which is rooted in God that we may call him our Father. And then the Catechism also shows us there are effects that are stimulated by the Lord within prayer, through faith, the child of God in you and me. First of all, the bold claim. That bold claim is in the against the background of what we must think about when we begin our prayer to God, our Father. The Catechism teaches us that immediately at the beginning of our prayer, this address forces us, brings into our consciousness the spiritual location and the majesty of God. 
Your children can hear that often in, your, in the prayers of your parents or of the office bearers in the church, for example, in catechism. They begin their prayers with these words that direct our thoughts to God's majesty. What is that majesty? In Isaiah chapter 2, verse 10, there is this phrase, the glory of his majesty. And the way that is inspired is meant by the Lord to mean that God's glory is his majesty. And that majesty of God involves his strength. According to Psalm 93, verse 1 we read, The Lord reigneth, he is clothed with majesty, the Lord is clothed with strength, wherewith he hath girded himself. The world also is established that it cannot be moved. God's majesty includes, first of all, his strength. That strength which is great, so great, we call that his omnipotence, his all-powerfulness, and his absolute sovereignty to govern everything in the creation, from the minutest particles that make up an atom to the great creatures beyond in the universe among the stars, very large stars, and to move them and to govern them for his purpose, And according to his good pleasure, for he is king. He reigns over everything. But not only is that majesty of God his great power, the Bible also has us understand that his majesty is beauty. Psalm 96, verse 6, we read, Honor and majesty are before him, strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. When the Hebrew language puts those two pairs together, honor and majesty, and then strength and beauty, we line those two up and we discover, oh, honor and strength go together and then majesty and beauty are corresponding here in the text so that God's majesty isn't just this raw power that God has and he can exercise it in his creation, but it is also revealed as beautiful. It's attractive. It's adorable majesty that God has. And that beauty of God's majesty is his holiness and his grace shines forth, especially unto his people in Christ. So that thirdly, God's majesty is his light. 1 John 1, verse 5, we read that God is light. Pure perfection, light. And in him is no darkness at all. God is all his majesty. Now when we read in Psalm 93, verse 1, that God is clothed with majesty, The psalm there is having us think of a king sitting on his throne, arrayed in all of his royal garments, has a crown on his head, has various fine garments with maybe jewels embedded into the coat that he's wearing. looks very beautiful. It's very expensive. But unlike the king, God wears his majesty not as just a coat on the outside of himself hanging on his body. God is not a man. But it does help us to understand that when God in his throne of glory exercises his power according to what he wants to do for his purpose and glory, he is clothed in his majesty. It defines everything about God, about who he is, what he does, why he does what he does, in all of his creation and even in his church, and even through our Lord Jesus Christ to his church. And so when we see the works of God, whether it be in creation or whether it be in the church, we behold 
his adorable, beautiful majesty. He is so clothed with majesty, the Bible makes clear in Hebrews 8, verse 1, God simply doesn't wear his majesty, he is that majesty. Hebrews 8, verse 1, we read of Jesus, who was set on the right hand of the throne of his majesty, the throne of his glory. God is called the majesty. That is his essence. That is who he is. And that is the one to whom we pray. At the beginning, immediately at the beginning of our prayers, Jesus says, think of God who is in heaven as the majesty. That implies then, beloved, the Lord would have us to reverence God in our prayers. That's done to correct what we would do by nature and be prone to do in our own human wisdom. We would like to bring God down. Bring him down here, onto our level. But the Lord reminds us at the beginning of the Lord's Prayer, no, the Lord is not our neighbor. He's not our best bud. He's not our servant. He's the lofty one, beloved, the most high God. There is this infinite distance between God and us. God is in heaven, in his majesty, which we can't even begin to understand. It's so incomprehensible and so infinite. And then there is us, little specks of dust upon the earth. And prayer is this activity where we, by a miracle that only God can do, we cross that infinite gap and we actually speak to him. And he actually hears us in communion with his infinite majesty. When we think of it as Jesus teaches us to do, that way... Then we understand godly, true prayer to God must breathe humility. It must not be put on. It must breathe humility. When we look at the prayers in Scripture of God's saints who prayed in their time of need, they poured out their heart before the Lord. Think of Eliezer, the servant of Abraham at the well. He pours out his heart before the Lord for the cause of God's covenant promise as he's sent on an errand which to him seemed utterly impossible. He needed to find a wife for Isaac. Or when David pours out his soul before the Lord in many occasions that are recorded in the Psalms. Or when Daniel pours out his heart before the Lord in the book of Daniel in prayer for the fulfillment of the promise of the 70 years in the light of the sins and failures of God's people, and then there in captivity in Babylon, under God's chastisement, we don't read of them joking around with God. We don't read of any humor in their prayers. Their words are filled with humility, with regard to themselves and God's people, and honor to his majesty. They were very careful and what they said. Very precise. Treating their position before the glorious majesty of God very, very carefully and thoughtfully. And thus we are taught to remember when we come before the infinite majesty of God, we are in that spiritual location of holy ground and must behave and speak with that understanding. But then the Lord also teaches us that before the Most High Majesty of God, remember and consider that wonderful relationship that God has established as the majestic one to you and say, Our Father. 
Beloved, that God is your Father is a wonder. It's a wonder that stands in contrast to you and me and what we are of ourselves. For by this address, we admit two things. First of all, God is our Father, but I am speck of dust here on the earth. I don't count of myself, and yet I may speak to him. And number two, I am sinner. By nature, I am not his child. I'm not that because of our fall and sin through Adam and because of our own sin. In my own sin, I am, we confess, I am not of myself a child of the Father. And without Christ, I'm worthy to be cast away from his presence into outer darkness and destroyed. Of myself, I'm not part of a family. I'm a spiritual orphan. And yet, Jesus teaches us the good news. You do have a special relationship with the majesty who is God. It's a relationship that is not in our sin, for God does not approve of sin before him. He is righteous. And God will not have fellowship with sin, for he is holy. Nevertheless, the lofty one in all of his majesty has a real, sure relationship with you that goes beyond his relationship as the God who has created you from an earthly point of view and rules over you in his providence. It's a special relationship, a spiritual relationship. And that relationship is expressed in the name Father. Father. Beloved, your God and our God is a covenant God. He's not a one-personed tyrant in a distant place who doesn't communicate, who never speaks his love, who can't walk, who can't see, who can't hear, Our Father is alive. He lives in his infinite life and glory. And he lives as the covenant God who is family God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That God knows life, knows love, knows family. And he reveals that adorable majesty to us in Jesus Christ, in this name, though we are Creatures, specks of dust, and those sinners beside, yes, you are in his family. God has a family into which he gathers into his everlasting arms of mercy his children. And there in that covenant family relationship in life, God speaks to us. He cares for us. He he gives to us everything that we need in this life. It's a family which is heavenly, spiritual. It's alive, full of communication and fellowship in the love of God and in a life which is consistent with his majesty. Jesus teaches at the beginning of your prayers, you must and you may boldly claim that majestic one, that lofty God to be your God as your Father. Now that doesn't mean that the Lord teaches that everyone will have God as Father. That's not true in human history. That's not true according to the Scriptures. It's not true in the Church Institute in the, in, in the whole New Testament that every member of the, the Church Institute has God as Father. And that's true because of the reason we'll look at in a few moments. And nevertheless, the promise of the gospel is that God is the Father to the Son to whom he brings the word, who calls them and by the Spirit gathers them unto himself out of their darkness into his marvelous light. And they will know God as their Father. You will know and do know God as your Father. And we call him Father, not thoughtlessly, 
as we may be tempted to do, not presumptuously, as we may also be tempted to do in a life of impenitence and sin, but we call him Father in true faith, laying claim to God, to his majesty, not just as Father, but my Father, my God. Beloved, you must do that. Do not doubt, be not faithless, the Lord teaches, but believe. The majestic one is your father. All of his adorable beauty. And you may claim God as your father, not because of what you do. It's not because of our nature. We fell in sin in Adam. We're not his children by nature. We're dead in sin, children of wrath. Nor is he our father because, on the ground of our faith, God is impressed by our believing. Oh, then that's why God made you his child. No. It's not because of your good works or how well you do your work in the home or how well you worship on the Lord's Day, although good works are very important. that We must desire to honor the Lord within a path of godliness and good works, out of faith in Christ, certainly. But that's not the reason. It's not because of a personal religious experience that one may have, and, well, that's the reason now why God is my Father. No. You may lay claim very boldly to God as your adorable, loving, caring Father because of God himself. According to Ephesians 1, verse 5, God is pleased to be your Father according to his good pleasure. In Ephesians 1 verse 5, we read, God having, or God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. That's the first part of the reason Why, God is your Father. It is his good pleasure. It is his grace to adopt you as his children, to bring you into his family. Though by nature, we were not part of his family, but determined to bring us in. Because of that gracious election, that blessed predestination unto his adoption, Jesus teaches that's why. You may and must believe, and out of that faith, believe, out of that faith, call God your Father. And number two, that Father who chose us in Christ sent Christ as His only begotten Son, in order to fulfill that adoption and to reveal that adoption. Our Lord Jesus Christ came into our flesh took upon himself all of the guilt of our sin, became a curse for us, became sin who knew no sin, bore the wrath of God for all of our sin, and in that suffering became, in the darkness of his death on the cross, a spiritual orphan in which he was forsaken by his father and suffered that so that you might never be forsaken and cast out on, as it were, cast out into the street to fend for yourself. Because Christ was cast out, God has brought us in for Jesus' sake, into the fellowship of his family, into the fellowship of his infinite, glorious, adorable majesty. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, then, by what he earned for us in his death and suffering, and by rising again the third day for us as our covenant head, we have the right to be the children of the Father and the life in his image to be in and to live in his family in the Father's house of many mansions. leads to the third part of the reason. Our Father, 
who determined to make us his children, establishes that in Jesus Christ, now draws us into his arms of everlasting mercy by the Spirit of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is sent into you to regenerate you, to make you born again in the life of Jesus Christ and to receive the image of Christ. And that Holy Spirit sent upon you continues to work that blessing in life in Jesus Christ. So that when the gospel is preached, the Holy Spirit having prepared your heart, the word is sown upon that heart like the parable of the good sower into the good soil. The word takes root and grows under the blessing of the Spirit and bears forth fruit out of faith within thankfulness and godliness. And by that work of the Spirit, we know the blessing of our justification. We grow in that blessing of sanctification. We are assured that God will preserve us and soon glorify us, giving us our place within the glory of his majesty in the Father's house of many mansions. The fruit of that work of the Spirit within us is that you know more and more, you learn more and more that God is your Father for Jesus' sake through the power of the Holy Spirit. That God did not leave me to perish in the streets of sin and death, but drew me in washed me in the blood of Christ, made me new by his spirit to live with him forever. Call, beloved, God, your Father, which art in heaven. As the Lord teaches us to do so, then that will lead to the stimulation of, or as the catechism teaches, we're excited unto two things. There are stimulated effects. Number one of the two is, first of all, when we're led by the Lord to pray in this way, out of a true faith, there will be the fruit of a childlike reverence unto God our Father. Praying as we should the Lord's Prayer and praying it as the model for all of our prayers in life, we will not be stimulated then to be like the pagans in their prayers. We will not be engaged in vain repetition. We will not go into great acts of self-harm and self-deprivation and self-wounding even as followers in some pagan religions do this day. We're not stimulated, you see, unto, well, I will help myself by what I do, and that will establish my standing before the God whom I serve, and that will give me good hope and good fortune and wealth in this life. No. Being called by God out of that darkness into the light and praying by faith on the foundation of Jesus Christ, the Lord's Prayer stimulates you and me or excites in us the knowledge of being a child in covenant relationship with the Father or being really an infant in that relationship. The Lord's Prayer stimulates in you and me that understanding of total dependence upon the Father. We understand we are all need, and only God can supply what we need through the various different means in life. To understand this, think of this picture very common. Think of the mother who's just fed the child, and there is the child, a little infant in her arms. And the child is awake, and the child being filled now, and the diaper's clean, and she's had a bath, and she's been fed, and now the little child looks up at her mother, and you look, she looks down, the mother looks down upon the child and sees in the child these bright eyes. In this large smile, the child is content. 
knows her place in that relationship. She's all need, and yet receiving everything she needs from her mother and her parents. She's happy, content, as she looks up and finds in the eyes of her mother also a smile. She finds grace, or that beauty, that smile of that relationship in the eyes of her mother. That is a picture of what the Lord stimulates in you and me within this life of prayer. Being a little infant in the arms of his everlasting mercy, receiving everything we need from his hand, looking up into his eyes with a smile by his grace and finding that God is smiling upon us and has smiled upon us from eternity in Christ for his sake in realizing that the only source for everything we need in life, including our health, comes from our Father, from his infinite majesty, his adorable majesty. That stimulates in us, beloved, a godly honor, but also a love for our Father, a looking to him, a delight in him as our father and that he will provide for us everything that we need. And in addition to that childlike reverence or love to God as a little infant smiling with those bright eyes looking into the face of her loving mother, we are also stimulated secondly unto a childlike confidence in God as our father. That God will surely give to us everything that we need. That's taught to us by Jesus in Matthew chapter 7 in the Sermon about the Kingdom of Heaven and verses 7 through 11, which is a lengthy reference. I'll read all of that. Matthew 7, verses 7 through 11. And that expresses this childlike confidence that the Lord stimulates in us by the Spirit within this Activity of prayer. Jesus says to us and commands us, Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asketh, receiveth. And he that seeketh, findeth. And to him that knocketh, it shall be opened. Or what man is there of you, whom if his son ask bread, will he give him a stone? Or if he ask a fish, will he give him a serpent, a snake? If ye then being evil know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your Father which is in heaven, your Father who is the majesty, how much more shall your Father which is in heaven give good things to them that ask him? Yes, our Father, clothed in his majesty, will never refuse the requests of his children that they bring before him out of faith according to his will. In Jesus Christ. When the little children of the Father ask him for something, will he refuse? That's a difficult question, isn't it? Because there are times when he asks for things which are good. They really are. We believe we have the best interest in mind for our children or our fellow believers could be a request for health, because we know they're sick. It could be a request that the Lord turn a wayward child, and we know that's good that they be turned, because the Bible teaches that in Luke chapter 15. Those are good things. And there are times when the answer of the Lord is, from our perspective, well, no. We visit that friend in the, in the Lord, and 
to encourage them because they still are sick or, or that loved one hasn't, as far as we can tell, repented or been converted. So is it true when the little children of the father ask the father for something good that he will never refuse them? And the answer is yes. We must be confident that the Lord will grant what we ask of him in true faith and then also according to his will. Believing that We cannot just simply demand of the infinite majesty what we want, even though it may be good. The answer to our requests are determined by his will and his good pleasure for us and for those concerning whom we may lay before the Lord those good petitions. We must be confident the Lord will do what seemeth good and knows what is good for us and for our fellow saints and for his sheep and his lambs. For he is not only our father, but he's also their father too, we believe, according to his covenant promises. We must have that confidence in him. My father will always do what is right. He is righteous. He is holy. He is good. Beyond our comprehension. But we believe it, like the little girl in the arms of her mother. Doesn't question her. She knows the love of her mother. She knows who will supply her need. Then the question is, is that not presumptuous? It would be presumptuous, and it is presumptuous for those who walk in sin and who would say, well, I'm walking in unbelief, and in that unbelief, walking in wickedness, I I don't need to keep the commandments of God, and now they pray, our Father. That would be presumptuous. And if we ever walk in unbelief and attempt to pray, our Father in heaven, the Lord's instruction is repent, repent. I mean, do that. We must come before the Lord in believing in faith, true faith in Jesus Christ. And out of that faith in Jesus Christ and humility in him and the knowledge of our nothingness and our great need for the forgiveness of sin and for righteousness in Christ and for everlasting life that's only in him, come before the Father confident he will supply all my need according to his riches in his glory for Jesus' sake. We come not presumptuously, of course not. We come before the Father on the foundation of Jesus Christ, our advocate at the right hand of God, which 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 calls the righteous. We stand firmly upon the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We come not clothed in our own good works. No, we come clothed in the righteousness, in the worthiness and the value of the blood of Jesus Christ shed for us. And we come not in our own life. We come in the life of Jesus Christ, clothed in his beauty. We come then in Christ, confident God will hear us. Not because I speak or you speak, but God will hear us. He will answer according to his time in his specific and wise way so that we receive everything we need and for sure will receive the grace and the mercy that is necessary for today. And then when tomorrow comes, we receive the grace and the mercy we need for tomorrow. Tomorrow, when tomorrow comes. He will be faithful to answer our prayers and to grant us his grace and spirit as we need. And then secondly, we can be assured that when we come to the Father, he will know what we need. He will will give us exactly and know and and will be brought before him exactly that which we need. 
that's mentioned in Romans chapter 8 in connection with the Spirit of Christ. So not only do we come before the Father in our advocate, the Lord Jesus Christ, but let's not forget the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 8, verse 28 and 27. 27 and 28, we read, And he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he, the Spirit, maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. That's important. Do I always know what to pray for? No. Do I always say it the right way? No. We don't, do we? Does that mean we, we're hopeless? No, beloved. We come by faith, out of faith, doing as best as we believe we must in our prayers, speaking carefully, filling up our prayers with the right content, but our confidence is not in our vocabulary. The confidence, our confidence is not in how long my prayer was, but my confidence is in the Spirit of Christ, who knows what I need. Better than I know that myself. So that though I do not know always what to ask for, the Spirit will intercede for us to bring before the Father exactly what we need. That's mysterious, but it's real. And therein is our confidence in Christ and His Spirit before our Father in heaven. He will hear, he will answer in his time, according to his will, in his mysterious way, he will and supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Beloved, when ye pray, say, our Father, which art in heaven. Amen. Let us pray. O most merciful God and gracious Father, grant to us the leading of thy spirit that we may learn more and more this blessed activity of prayer, engaging in that activity which is itself a, a, a wonder which only thou canst establish and bring to reality in us, a glorious wonder of speaking to thee Thine infinite majesty, through our mediator, by his spirit, so that our needs may be known, we may have fellowship with thee, and be confident that thou wilt grant to us all that we need, according to thy wisdom and will, for Jesus' sake. Hear us, Heavenly Father, in his name alone, amen.